0: Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I don't know why I have to start every intro like I'm, you know, presenting at the Kentucky Derby. Uh, welcome everybody to Animals to the Max. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. How is everybody doing today? As always, all around the world, I appreciate you. I appreciate your ears. Thank you for listening to the show. Okay, you guys. So we are and I can't even believe this. I mentioned this I think the last episode, but we are almost oh my gosh, 2 years into the show. So working actually almost on our third season in November. Season 3 of Animals to the Max, we're nearing 100 episodes. I just can't even believe it. I'm I'm oh my goodness. I just absolutely love this platform more and more and the people I've been able to talk to are just just mind blowing. So I, I am seriously thankful every single day for what I'm able to do, you know, being able to talk to these professionals. And when I started this a few years ago, there were two topics or like two animals I really wanted to discuss. One was hyenas, which aired last week. Love that interview. If you did not listen to that interview, um, please check it out with Dr. K Holcamp with hyenas. They are just so fascinating. And she's like the Jane Goodall of hyenas. So check that out. But two, I wanted to interview a researcher on leopard seals. And, you know, I was just on the search. I was on the manhunt to try to find an expert. And for those of you, here's a little behind the scenes information. So what I do when I'm kind of trying to decide, you know, which topics or guests, blah, 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 I have a list. And so for instance, I had leopard seal very, very high up on the list. I basically just went to Dr. Google and was like a leopard seal researcher and tried to find as much information as I could. And what I found out of all the topics we've discussed on the show, out of all the experts, animals, whatever, there was very little information on leopard seals. Matter of fact, it was hard to even find a researcher... Who knew about leopard seals? Because not a lot is known about them. They are a top predator in, you know, the Antarctic ecosystem, but there's not a lot known about them. And so I am so, so excited. I finally found Dr. Doug Krause. And he is from NOAA, also known as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And he is part of the Antarctic Ecosystem Research Division try to say that three times no he has quite a title and he is such an interesting guy I'll tell you what he was so fascinating because he has been studying leopard seals for so many years and he's one of the few people who have spent countless hours just observing these animals not much like I said earlier is known about these animals and you know in the media they're portrayed as these fearsome predators you know in animated films and also even like when you watch you know National Geographic if you've ever seen leopard seals you'll more than likely see the Either tearing apart a penguin or throwing a seal pup in the air. So they haven't been painted, you know, the prettiest picture. Yes, they are top carnivores. Yes, they do this, but they also were smart. There's just really a lot of stuff that we don't know about them that we're still learning. And Doug is one of those people. And I love talking to him. The interview went a little long. I think we're almost into an hour and a half. I was so fascinated just speaking with him and just learning all these new things. Like, for instance, what blew my mind is, you know, yes, leopard seals are top predators. They take down other seals penguins, but they also eat krill like what? They just there's so much I just learned and I just like I said blew my mind and also on a side note Antarctica is definitely on the top of my bucket list to visit and I would love to see leopard seals out in the wild So that is why I was so fascinated. I know you are going to love this interview with dr. Doug Krause Now before we get into the interview, we're gonna do something new and this is really interesting It's kind of exciting and I'm sharing it with you first here on the podcast as always I love this platform my favorite platform to share stuff with you first first we're going to do something new regarding a new segment for the show and we're going to call it quick bites okay so for you know before you start thinking that you know this is like a new appetizer at a restaurant no quick bites has nothing to do with food but uh kind of what what I decided to do and this is kind of from some feedback from you know listeners and also from my management and team is we're going to start doing shorter episodes so for instance you know with this leopard seal interview it ran around an hour and a half right so what we're going to do is from that interview I'm going to take five to 10 minutes and kind of go over some highlights in like a quick bites episode. So I'm still going to air the long form interview. Animals to the Max is not going to change, but additionally, there's going to be kind of a quicker episode. So for instance, for, you know, people listening into the car, maybe with their kids, they have like a short drive to work or, you know, I mean, sh- a short drive, driving them to school, maybe five to 10 minutes. You can turn on quick bites and learn like, I don't know, five fun facts about leopard seals or something to take away. Or let's say you're brushing your teeth or you're on the toilet and <laughs> you just want to, you know, you just have five minutes and you want to learn something fun and new and you don't have the time to listen to an hour and a half. That's why we're introducing Quick bites. So I'm excited to, you know, see what you think. And as always, let me know what you think. Send me an email, info at CorbinMaxi.com. Will you listen to Quick Bites? Or will you listen to the long form? Don't worry for all of my hardcore listeners. The show format, the long form format of the podcast, the interviews will not change. We're just adding something additionally, maybe for people who are in a rush or who just want something quick, you know, like a quick, you know, like to go order of a podcast. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. So, with that said, before we get to the interview, as always, please make sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and review. Um, If you do review us on iTunes and I see it, which I usually do, I will give you a shout out. one of the animals and it's a great way to get our podcast out there so do that also uh, follow us on social media Facebook Instagram, Twitter send in your guest suggestions and I think that's about it with that said, I hope you enjoy my interview with dr. Doug Kraus ladies and gentlemen we're going to talk about leopard seals I am so excited I hope you enjoy it All righty we are now live oh my god so dr. <laughs> Doug Krause. I am so excited to have you on the show.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll tell you what. So I started this podcast two years ago, and I had two species I really, really wanted to highlight. One was the hyena, and two was the leopard seal. And Well, well, you're
1: two for two. I saw you had a a really cool story up there on hyenas.
0: Yeah, I know. So it's like two weeks in a row, and I've been trying to find someone to talk about leopard seals, And honestly, there's not much out there just about them. I mean, it's hard to find someone who studied them and I just cannot wait to talk to you about them.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, it's it's a a, it's for sure a species. I think it's something it's a it's an animal that we're learning a whole lot about and have been, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, But yeah, there just aren't that many people out there studying them.
0: Yes. Okay. So let's, first of all, let's announce your title, right? Because you are with the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the Antarctic Ecosystem Research Division.
1: (laughs) That is correct. It's a mouthful.
0: Dear Lord, I'm happy I didn't have a drink before that. (laughs) That's insane. Okay. So what is your jobs for listeners?
1: Uh, Yeah. So my official job title is I'm a research uh, fishery biologist. Um, But My job is to study the health of uh, populations of Antarctic seals and use them as indicators of the health of the local fisheries.
0: So growing up, did you always want to work with seals or marine animals, or how did this come about?
1: Uh, That's a good question. The short answer is not specifically, but partially just because I didn't know (laughs) that these animals existed. Uh, I was definitely always interested in ecology um, and wild animals and patterns in nature, essentially, and trying to understand how those patterns fit together. But it was definitely a little bit further on that I started to learn a bit more about marine mammals specifically.
0: Mm-hmm. So, did you grow up like? What was your dream job when you wanted when you were young? Did you want to be a biologist or a zookeeper or like? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> You know, I you know probably like a lot
1: of people, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but um, honestly, for the longest time, um, I was interested in being a forestry researcher. Okay. okay. I grew up in rural New Hampshire and just spent a lot of time walking around, hiking around in the woods, um, just being fascinated with the different patterns and interactions that I saw out there. And, and I definitely, all the way through my undergraduate, saw myself doing forestry research.
0: Okay, so how do you go from, I mean, New Hampshire all the way down to Antarctica? And I know it's <laughs> there's probably a lot in between, but it's yeah, take, take me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are a couple steps uh, yeah, in between. Cool. Yep. I'll try to give you the reasonably short version, which is uh, I did study uh, forestry and um, forest ecology when I was an undergrad. And basically my senior year did a thesis and spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in the forest by myself looking at fungus.
0: Oh, and really? I love mycology. Sorry. Yeah. Well, How it is. It's fascinating. It's oh, fascinating, so fascinating. But fascinating. I totally burnt myself out. Oh, okay. um,
1: and and I, so when I graduated, I was like, okay, well, I just need to do something completely different. Um, and I, I just wasn't ready to go straight into grad school. Um, and... Ended up working for an organization uh, called the NOAA Corps, okay. which is the uniform service portion of NOAA uh, that almost no one has ever heard of.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm shaking my head, like, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, sure. You're yeah, like, uh, Corps, yeah, right, Corbett. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's this.
1: It, it's a very, very tiny. It's, it's the seventh uniform service in the United States. But um, uh, we can. Uh, I can go into as much detail or as little as you want. But essentially. It's an organization that's responsible for operating the fleet of scientific research ships and scientific research aircraft that okay. the federal government owns and operates to, to gather data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went out to sea with the NOAA Corps for a few years, um, learned a ton. It was an amazing experience. And in the process of doing that, made some contacts. Um, I'm a person who just loves to travel, full stop. Oh, yeah. um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that travel, uh, you know, as uh, Mark Twain said, is the enemy of bigotry and small-mindedness. Um, and uh, as such, Antarctica is pretty much the, the epitome of that, at least it was for me. So remote, very difficult to get to, really fascinating place. Um, and, uh, you know, basically met someone while I was working out on the ship's. Whose husband was working down in the Antarctic, et cetera, et cetera. And that sort of led to my first job, which I thought was going to be three years start to finish, you know, scratch that itch, check that, you know, place off the list and move on to the next thing. And, um, but very, very quickly after getting down there um, became, Obsessed is uh, maybe a strong word, but I fell in love with the place, frankly. Um, and uh, there, there's a term which some folks use who, who work down there regularly, which is, you know, that you get bitten by the polar bug. Okay. Um, it's sort of uh, you know a sickness for life. <laughs> you just can't quite get it out of your uh, out of your system.
0: Well, okay. So, Doug, take me through what was your first impression like Antarctica? Like, I and by the way, that's on my bucket list. What is it like? Because a lot of people listen here, like, what would that be like? Yeah, well, it, you know, I'll,
1: I'll give you my perspective, but the, the truth is, of course, it's a gigantic place. And uh-huh. so your experience there is going to be very different depending on where you are and what you're doing. Uh, it's the largest desert anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. It's the tallest continent. So much of uh, the continent is covered in ice sheets that are sometimes miles thick um, or or over a mile thick, just really incredible uh, deposits of ice that are not devoid of life, but um, are are, um, fairly barren from uh, from an ecological and biological perspective because of the nature of that continent. Um, And so if you were to go to the South Pole, if you were to go to some of the bases that are in the East Antarctic or up on the ice shelf, mm-hmm. you're going to find a place that's extremely cold, extremely dry, um, and not a lot going on biologically. Uh, I happen to work in the Antarctic Peninsula area. Okay. So if you look at the continent, there's sort of one bit that sort of sticks up okay. towards South America. Oh, yeah, like, right oh, here. Okay. Yeah, right there. Yeah, and it bends up towards South America, and that is the most northern part of the entire continent. And as such, it's less cold, and it's also closer to um, some other ecosystems that, that are associated with uh, with the other continents. And so you get this really incredible biological mix of Antarctic species and uh, South American and uh, sub-Antarctic species all sort of coming together, uh, and it creates... A fascinating mix.
0: So I just, I have no idea. So when people like tourists, do you know how many tourists actually visit Antarctica? Is there like a stat for that? Or
1: I'm sure there's a stat. I don't know it off the top of my head. Oh. I would, it's gotta be on the order of thousands to tens of
0: thousands. Okay. And Doug, where do they, is this where they normally go? This, this Antarctic peninsula where you, is, is that where you would go if, if I wanted to go to the art Antarctica?
1: Yeah. Uh, the vast majority. So not all, there are some tour groups, um, that do longer, uh, tours that leave from New Zealand or Australia, etc. Um, but the vast majority of the tourism in the Antarctic does take place in the peninsula. Okay. Um, and most of those operators leave from either Southern Argentina or Southern Chile.
0: Okay. And how long is the boat ride?
1: So if you are on a fancy cruise ship, oh. um, you can leave from Ushuaia, which is in the southern part of Argentina, uh, and actually get across the Drake's Passage, which is that body of water right there, mm-hmm. um, in between Cape Horn and um, the tip of the peninsula. You can do that in a day and a half to two
0: days, okay?
1: Which is pretty quick. If you're traveling on an oceanographic research ship,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, which uh, you know, not necessarily built for comfort and speed. Um, that's probably gonna take more like three and a half or four days.
0: That'd probably be me. Is that the cheaper version? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no way I could be on a luxury ship. It's just not my style. There's yeah,
1: there's a there's a there is a range. Um okay. but even the, the more moderately priced uh, options are um, certainly an investment, but I would argue a worthwhile one.
0: Absolutely. Okay, sorry to like interrupt you, but I just have always wanted yep. to go to Antarctica. I just want to know these, you know, I'm yep. sure someone else is listening, like, where do you leave, to, you know, depart? How long does it take to get there? Where do you go? It's such a big continent.
1: Yeah, well, we actually, so uh, our research group and other research groups do have ongoing relationships with some of the tour operators. It's um It's actually a natural partnership because it's such a difficult place to get to. Uh, from the scientist's perspective, you've got these ships that are going down there regularly, um, and these folks can um, can give us a ride down, can help us collect science. Uh, some of the tour operators actually have grant programs. National Geographic, for example, does that. Um, I've worked with them. And um, and so it's helpful from the scientist's perspective. And then from the tourist's perspective, if you're going down there, it makes your, your trip for most people it makes your trip a little bit more interesting to actually have a real researcher on the boat that you can ask more specific questions to, et cetera. Uh, Most of the tour operators have, you know, uh, employees who are naturalists who are really well informed and and can help guests interpret and understand what's going on. Um, but anyway, all, all that to say that there is a natural partnership between the scientific community and the, and the tour community down there. Um, and I will just, just for your own information, you can edit this out later, but most of the tours are seven to ten days.
0: Okay, yeah, we don't have to Um, edit this out. This is great. Seven to ten
1: days. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, and so it varies from there. You can go longer, you can go shorter, and there is, like anything else, there's a whole range. Some of the tour operators are more expensive and more luxury-oriented. Some of them are, um, you know, more economical. Um, but, But really, once you start looking into it and asking questions, um, my own advice is that you look for folks that um, that travel in relatively small numbers and that are focused on doing excursions rather than, you know, just driving by on the ship and, and letting you look at things.
0: Yeah. Oh, I would contact you. I mean, can you give me some price range? I mean, let's say something. Ec- I mean, economical like it, I mean, is there any is there anything like ten, fifteen thousand, twenty? 15,000, 30, I
1: like? I am not the right person to ask about that because I've never really researched it myself.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Um but I think you're in the right ballpark for a 7 to t- 10 day I would think yeah, I don't know, 8 to 15 maybe. Okay, good. To, yeah, I feel like okay,
0: awesome. Give or yeah. take. Yeah, well, no one's going to And then judge and you. then it's
1: like anything else. You can go as high as you want. You know, if you want the VIP cabin on the most expensive ship, I'm sure that's tens of thousands
0: of dollars. <laughs> I'm good. All yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <so> me too. <laughs> I'll be in steerage. Yeah. Right. So back on to you. So you first get to Antarctica. What is it like, your first impression of this place?
1: Um, man, that's it's a, it's a great question. And you, you would not believe how many times I've been asked. And I still don't have a really good elevator pitch to sum it up. Because I for me, I'm not able to compare it to anything else. Um, getting down there, um, you know, you, you've got this transition, you're going through the Drake's passage, which is one of the roughest patches of ocean anywhere in the world. Um, it's world renowned, uh, for, for being difficult to get through. And so you're, you're already playing the lottery Mm -hmm. because some days it's lovely and some days it's just not, you know, and so it can either just be a breeze or it can feel like something that you really had to earn to get there. Um, and my first couple of experiences were in the latter category. So when you pop out the other side of the Drake's Passage, you're already feeling like you've been through something. Um, you know, you don't just fly into the airport. You really have earned it. Um, and that led into seeing a place that is just absolutely gorgeous. Just sheer glacier-covered cliffs um, rising up like fjords. In fact, they are fjords in some places uh, right out of the water. You've got a ton of different marine mammal communities who are there during the summer. So you're going to see whales. You're going to see beaked whales. um, You're going to see dolphins, uh, at least further north. Um, You're going to see all sorts of species of seals and penguins. i had never seen penguins before, which is... Oh, my
0: God. Now, is it it like National Geographic when they're just all on the, I mean, coastline, and it's just like, oh, it's just like how I expected?
1: (laughs) Yes, with one caveat. Uh, I I will say that um, I work with... I am not a seabird biologist. I will not claim to be one, but I do support our seabird research regularly. I work with penguins all the time. Uh-huh. Um, it's really in- ecologically important work, but uh, you know, penguins are in fact cantankerous and they smell oh, horrible. I mean, all seabird colonies are like pretty intense, but. There are definitely, uh, there's a certain density of penguin that I have actually seen healthy grown adults pass out from the smell. are you
0: oh, really like, like humans? Not, 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 not,
1: not, okay. Yeah. Oh, no, true, true story. Only uh, to be fair, only one, but it, it's very understandable. It's, it's pretty intense.
0: So yeah, I had someone on who, who actually studied on, um, I think, uh, St. George Island. I was like, tell me what it was like. And she was like, it was disgusting. Like the smell was <laughs> <laughs> like, I was imagining like, you know, March of the penguins, you know, with Morgan Freeman yep. in the background. She's like, Oh my God, no. She's like, it stinks. Yep you know and um <laughs> well
1: that's it. yeah i'm i want to put together a documentary that's just called the truth about penguins that? just
0: oh my god just just
1: to let just to let folks know you know that it's not all uh, happy feet type situation but uh, i you know i i don't want to like get down on penguins oh, no, i not absolutely at all. they're fascinating
0: not at all. But I love this is why this is like the behind the scenes of the show that that's what I want to know. That's yeah. interesting, though. So it's like, oh, my God, what's that smell? OK, so yeah. <laughs> OK, so you see penguins and all these different types of marine animals. Oh, I couldn't even how incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, and you've got all that wrapped up with this remote Arctic place. Right. So you've got icebergs floating by, which are, in my opinion, just works of art that are constantly being carved. They're constantly changing They're refracting light and all sorts of interesting ways you can learn a ton about any given iceberg once you know what to look for just by looking at it and you can look at patterns and colors and densities um you know just fascinating and you look around Uh, we got to the research site where i originally started working down there Um, and we're on this little peninsula of land hemmed in by glaciers it's probably a mile and a half long by a mile wide and You know, there probably be been maybe 300 people there total in the whole history of humanity.
0: What? You know, like, because why would you go? It's like it is seriously the last place on Earth that hasn't been touched or ruined or devastated. I mean, I guess, you know, it's insane.
1: Yeah, you know, it is pristine. And I think that a big part of the reason to be serious about conservation in the Antarctic Um, particularly, you know, all with all the issues that surround America, you know, the United States involvement down there um, is because there is so much of the ecosystem down there uh, that that does remain that is just like it was, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago anyway. Um, But the truth of the matter is, you know, there isn't any place left on the planet that we haven't touched. Um, You know, this area that I was just describing, incredibly remote, it had an emotional impact on me, but by the same token, there is not a day that goes by that new plastic doesn't wash up on that beach. Mm. Um, I mentioned that that peninsula was hemmed in. When I got there in 2002, uh, that peninsula was hemmed in by two glaciers. One of those glaciers is now gone. It, It didn't just retreat, it's gone. Um, and the other one is in retreat. 90% of the glaciers down there in the peninsula region mm-hmm. are in retreat. And it's warming at one of the fastest rates on earth. And, you know, it's, it's folks that are driving that. And as you can imagine, that's a big part of my research is trying to understand the effects that those changes are having.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's get. I guess we are um eighteen. Oh, we're almost, we're actually almost nineteen minutes in. We haven't even talked about the leopard seal. Sorry. And okay. By the way, okay. oh Sorry. no, no, it's not you. It's me because I'm like <laughs> I'm sitting here like tell me about Antarctica. So yep. you get there. Tell me your first encounter with a leopard seal. And, and and by the way, have you? I mean, did you know much about them or prior? Uh
1: yeah, so. Short answer is no. I didn't know much about them, and I'll give you. I'll try to give you the again the uh, the two minute version of this. But uh, the reason our program is down there is actually to study another species, which is the Antarctic fur seal. And I uh, over the course of my work there, I I had a background in biology and ecology, but I didn't know much about marine mammals when I got started. And they're uh, you you know Antarctic fur seals are a whole different conversation. Super fascinating animals but um that's what we were studying And leopard seals at that time in our area were relatively rare and i remember because the first year we were down there i'd been there for a couple of months and someone radioed in and said there's a leopard seal over on this beach which is on the west west side it's like a 25 minute hike from where we were and i immediately stopped what i was doing grabbed my camera and ran out the door Because I didn't know if I would ever see a leopard seal again. It was a huge deal. The hair is actually standing up on my arm right now as I'm remembering it. And, you know, I took a ton of pictures. And it's just this fascinating, huge animal that had a big female that had hauled out on one of these rocky beaches to rest. And, uh, you know, amazing. And so took a bunch of pictures, you know, la, 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 and, and off I go. Well, fast forward a couple years. And leopard seals, we would see them, but they were not common. And then I left for a couple of years. After 2006, I left to go to graduate school. I did a master's, et cetera, et cetera. And I came back in 2008, and I just saw this amazing change, Um, like day and night. From one or two leopard seals, uh, now we're seeing seven or eight leopard seals hauling out on one beach at one time. Mm -hmm. There are leopard seals everywhere you look. Um, you can go out on any day at any hour of the day, and there's going to be leopard seals around and coincident with that, which is extraordinarily rare. As you can imagine, we're talking about it.
0: is like, what? That doesn't make sense. It's usually the opposite. Okay.
1: Yep. And these are apex predators. They're solitary. So think of a, a grizzly bear or a polar bear, right? You don't just see a big group of them unless the only circumstance when they'll tolerate each other is when there's a really hyper dense uh, concentration of prey that they're really interested in, right? So polar bears will tolerate each other if there is a whale carcass, for example. Um, Grizzly bears will tolerate each other during salmon runs at different times of the year, etc. And I didn't, I wasn't fully aware that that's what was going on, but it was. Now, we saw these huge changes in leopard seal numbers, and at the same time, we saw a huge decrease and a rapid decrease in the number of Antarctic fur seals. And oh. it turns out that leopard seals eat Antarctic fur seal pups. They eat adults, too, but much more commonly, they eat the pups. And, and, and you know, I was just blown away. And at that moment, I was in. I was like, what is going on? What caused this big change? What are the impacts of this big change? Um, and that became the foundation for my PhD dissertation.
0: Wow i I am so drawn into this. I feel like I'm watching a movie. Or I'm tell me more, man. <laughs> I'm serious. Like what? Well, like I'm so fascinated by this.
1: Yeah. Well, I obviously I was too. And you know, like you, what I did at the time was, oh, well, let's look this up. What do we know about leopard seals? Let's go. Right? Are <laughs> uh, you know, is, is this a common interaction? Have we seen this other places, etc. And what I found was uh, that there is very little. Ecologically, biologically, there's very little that's known about this animal, even though it's a numerous apex predator, right? And so it's not hard to imagine that it's charismatic. Uh, people are sort of naturally interested in what it's doing, and we know from other systems, including wolves, white sharks, and uh, orcas, um, killer whales—that that apex predators are really important to understand because they can have potentially big impacts on the systems that they're yeah. they're operating.
0: Now, Doug, really quick, just for listeners who maybe have never heard of a leopard seal, because I'm sure there's some people who are like, "What is this?" Sure. Can you describe it to people, yes. like how big, like just, yeah, let's yeah. Say,
1: like, It's you will never forget the first time that you see a leopard seal. Um, And I can promise you that. I've been told that.
0: I like that. That's a great quote.
1: (laughs) I love it. They are, um, of course, they're seals. And they are what we call phocids. They're true seals. So if you look at the first time you see a leopard seal, you will be struck by the fact that it's rather prehistoric or serpentine or reptilian looking. You see that head pop out of the water and it almost looks like a sea serpent. It's really streamlined. Their eyes are pretty far back on their snout and they have this huge mouth and huge skull in proportion of the rest of their body. You're used to thinking about seals and harbor seals and maybe uh, uh, gray seals or other species that most people are going to be fam- more familiar with. They look like sausages with tiny little heads popped on the front. Yeah, right? absolutely. They're 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 you know they were engineered by the through the course of evolution to be as efficient uh, little submarines as possible, and that's how they're shaped. And leopard seals just don't look like that. They are built for a different purpose, if you will. Uh, and so they've got these huge heads. They've got long, extensible necks, which is also unusual. Um, their foreflippers are extraordinarily uh, big and developed in comparison to other seals. And so they're the only phocid seal that actually uses their foreflippers as a primary means of propulsion uh, during certain times. Other seals use their mostly their hind flippers and just the front ones to steer, if you will. Um, So they're serpentine in nature, and they're large. They're one of the largest species of seals. They're the largest Antarctic ice seal. Um, And they're sexually dimorphic, which means that the males and the females are different sizes on average. Okay. So uh, the males will be mm, around – uh, I'll convert to uh, uh, American. If that's Use feet and pounds. Is that the right thing? Yes, to do?
0: pounds. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. So there, uh, the males will get to be around uh, ten feet long, and um, I guess about seven or eight hundred pounds.
0: Oh my gosh! Uh,
1: and those are the little guys, because the big females will roll in closer to twelve feet. And we've definitely had animals that were well over, it's close to 1,300 pounds. Basically the size of an adult male grizzly bear or a horse.
0: Oh my goodness. I didn't realize they were that big. 12 yeah, feet? Big. Whew. Yep. Okay. And
1: th- you know, those are just—I'm describing what is on the upper side of average for for a female leopard seal. But we regularly get animals that are over 500 kilograms. Uh, we've even had them over 600 kilograms, um, and they're they're substantial.
0: Oh my God. Okay. And are they? I guess they haven't evolved right to like grow fear of humans, correct? Right? Can you? I mean, are they? Skittish, really. Yeah,
1: so there's there hasn't been a ton, historically, a ton of overlap between humans and leopard seals. And because probably because of their solitary nature, mm-hmm. so they don't congregate in large numbers, they were never uh, hunted by human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so interactions, and there are regularly interactions, as we mentioned, the tourism that goes on in the Antarctic Peninsula. There are interactions regularly between humans um and leopard seals and the vast 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 majority of them are pretty moderate and temperate Um, leopard seals are curious and because they're apex apex predators there's very little that they're intimidated by and so um, you know either they're going to come and check you out because they're defending their territory or they're going to come and check you out because they're like hey what the heck is this you know, inflatable boat or outboard engine or even people walking along, uh, you know, a shoreline and stuff, they'll spy hop and pop their heads up and, and sort of check you out. But, uh, no, they're, they're generally more more curiosity, I would say, rather than um, a flight response.
0: Okay. So you see a leopard seal for the first time. I love that quote. You'll never forget the first time you see a leopard seal. That's amazing. So that's oh, true. Yeah. So tell me, so you come back in 2008, right? And there are just tons of leopard seals congregating, which is weird because they're solitary and you just, you are hooked. So tell me what you found and you know, how you research. I mean, just, yeah. Take us in.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, I will, uh, and Doug, don't worry. We have a podcast. No one's cutting us off. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I
1: you know I wanna I wanna be uh, uh, I guess as uh, holistic and as helpful as possible. So I'm not the only person in the world who studies leopard seals. And um, there's one other researcher in particular who's a woman who uh, works out of Australia. Her name is Tracy Rogers, <gasps> um, and is a professor at the University of New South Wales. And she has just done a ton over the course of her career to study and help understand and build some context for a lot of the work that I did. Um, and she uses some different techniques. She's, she and her colleagues and co- uh, uh, researchers um, have used a lot of acoustic techniques, some genetic techniques, um, and um, uh, survey-based stuff. And they've also done um, some of the same type of stuff which I've done. So. When I got started, I looked, you know most of what we knew was really coming out of her research lab. Um there's a, there a couple of folks that were working up uh, at um, South Georgia Island, mm-hmm. some uh, British researchers who had who had done some really good stuff. And so I tried to build on that. And what I had realized was there actually wasn't a shortage of observations about leopard seals. Um in fact, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of reports over the hundred and fifty years since they were first discovered of what they were doing it's just that most of those observations were anecdotal people were down there doing other things and they're like oh that leopard seals eating a penguin i'm going to write that down or tell somebody um and but all of them all of those observations were t- were done opportunistically from shore right okay. folks who are on an ice floe, folks who are on a boat Folks who are on an island and they're looking and seeing what leopard seals are doing sort of opportunistically, which is typically taking place during the daytime. So it's a, uh, A, those reports are anecdotal, so it's hard to find trends, and B, um, those opportunistic shore based observations are limited. You just can only see a small part of what's going on. You're studying a marine mammal. Most of what it's doing is actually underwater. Yeah, right? and
0: really quick, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but how often yep. – I mean because I feel like all the footage I've ever seen of them have been in the water. I didn't realize they came out to, to on land. Do they do that, I mean, often or is that that's, – that's, I yeah, never even realized that.
1: Yeah, all seals t- to some degree will haul out to rest, mm-hmm. typically to breed. Um, and in some cases to actually gain an advantage uh, 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 for foraging as well. Okay. But, yeah, primarily hauling out for resting um, and uh, for breeding purposes. And so leopard seals are no different. And um, there are four species of Antarctic ice seal, leopard seal being one, and they all depend on sea ice, actually, as their primary substrate. They're looking for certain types of ice, And they'll haul out and and utilize that as their, you know, land-based haul-out. What we see at Cape Sheref and a few other places is that leopard seals actually haul out on land, which is fairly unusual. Um, And uh, that, again, is driven by a couple things. One, as I mentioned, you've got this tolerance, this uh, high concentration density of leopard seals. They want to be close to that prey, and there's no ice available. And the second part of that is there's no ice available because there's been so much warming in the region of the Antarctic Peninsula. And so uh, there's been tremendous losses in the coverage of sea ice. And so they've just adapted um, and they are able to. Uh, rest and a haul out on land you can have enough logical flexibility to do that
0: sorry i just was i had to ask because i i've always thought they were mainly you know i knew they got on ice but but when you mentioned land earlier i thought that's really weird i've never seen footage of that okay so so you so you were saying back on what you're talking about not much was known i mean observations from the from an ice you know whatever but not much was known
1: that's right. That's right. And, there, and you know, and there had been a couple of interactions here and there. Um, uh, and, you know, a couple National Geographic photographers here, some folks using pole cams and and things. Um, but uh, but I knew that I, we needed to solve that. So uh essentially I took a multifaceted, and uh it wasn't just me, I worked with a whole team of fabulous researchers at NOAA uh within the Antarctic ecosystem research division. Um but uh the what we did was to apply a whole suite of techniques. So I reached one of the first things I did was to reach out to the Critter Cam group at National Geographic um and talk to those guys to see if they'd be interested in partnering up, and they were. Um and uh, and and so we got access to these animal-born cameras that that group developed. Okay. Uh, we de- we so we deployed those along with a whole suite of um, what we call biologgers. So they're instruments that will actually epoxy to the fur on the dorsal side of these animals, and um, and then let them go about their business and um, you know forage, undertake uh, their natural behaviors. Uh, without any interference or observation from us and then um, later on they haul out on land again and we recover those instruments and so that has really cracked open if you will uh, helped to really crack open our understanding of what these animals are doing the whole time that you can't see them from uh, from land including a lot of that video footage which was just gold
0: yeah so let's talk about that the video footage what did you find
1: Oh, I, it was uh, really amazing. I had high expectations, but they were, frankly, exceeded. Basically, every time we got a video back, we I, I learned something new. Or we were able to confirm something that we, we weren't quite sure about. So let me give you a couple examples. Oh, heck yes. Yeah, and uh, frankly, I gotta tell you, we would, you, these uh, cameras don't transmit to a satellite or anything. You have to recover them and then download the data and put it on your computer. And I would be there at the field camp just in the middle of the night. I couldn't even go to bed, right? So I'm just sitting there with my laptop in my bunk, you know, trying not to wake anybody up and like going through the footage minute by minute because it's just, if you can imagine working there, we did our first camera deployment in 2012. So that was four years after really starting this work and just wondering, what are they doing? What are they doing? You know, so it was fascinating. So anyway, but one example uh, right off the bat that we learned was, people had seen interactions in the water between leopard seals, and in fact, people had seen instances where one leopard seal would catch a penguin, for example, um, and another leopard seal would come along, and then after a couple minutes, the interloper, the second leopard seal, would leave with the penguin. And there was some discussion among scientists and in the literature, okay, well, is this cooperative hunting? Do those two seals know each other? Is that maybe offspring relationship or kinship relationship? We're not sure. Or is it kleptoparasitism? Is it a forced takeover? Right. Um, and uh, no one was really sure until we got this video footage. And when you see it, it's so intense. Uh, there are a couple clips uh, if you haven't seen I can uh, that are up on the internet, and I Please can point do. you to them. Um, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, I characterize it almost, uh, you know, like um, uh, documentary style hand cam footage going into a war zone because it's it's sort of, you start with a smooth interaction of a leopard seal swimming. She's just captured an Antarctic fur seal pup um, and killed it. And she's about to uh, process it, eat it in the way that she normally does. And... You know, from off screen comes another large adult female, comes right at her mouth open, jabs at her head. Next thing you know, it's you know things are going a million miles an hour, and these two gigantic leopard seals are going mouth to mouth, open, just snapping at each other, make you know putting out their forelimbs, making themselves look as big as possible, and ha- essentially having a standoff to fight over this food resource. Um, And we ended up capturing a number of those different events where kleptoparasitism is definitely actually happening. And that's a behavior that it's definitely interesting, but it's also really important ecologically. Because while we're trying to understand the impact that an apex predator like leopard seal could have on fur seals, for example, or penguins, if you have interspecific competition to the point, so leopard seal competing against leopard seal to the point where they're, do, where they're undertaking kleptoparasitism, that actually increases the impact on their prey field. And so you can sort of think about it as leopard seal number one catches a fur seal pup, leopard seal number two steals it. Well now leopard seal number one needs to catch more than two pups to make up for that energy deficit. So if these two leopard seals were just foraging directly, they would have less of an impact than when you have this kleptoparasitism uh, interaction. So, behaviors like that, when you start thinking community wide, become really important.
0: And, and are Antarctic fur seals, are they common? I mean,
1: yeah, they are common. Okay. Um, and in fact, the area where uh, NOAA's research um, uh, field camp is at Cape F on Livingston Island is the location of the largest Antarctic fur seal breeding colony in the peninsula area. And I'll put that in a little bit of context, though. So at its peak, there was something like 25,000 animals, including mothers, pups, uh, and the males interacting with them. Um, but the by far largest colony of Antarctic fur seals is up near South Georgia Island, and there are millions, oh, wow. over a million okay. uh, animals up there. So... Yeah, they're, the Antarctic fur seals are pretty numerous, and you're likely to see them around South Georgia Island uh, or in the Antarctic Peninsula area.
0: Okay, but you said they did from 2003. What you saw because of the numerous leopard seals, there was a there was a a um, decline in the in the fur seals, right? Because their populations exploded.
1: Yeah. So as of this season, there's over a ninety percent decrease just since 2005. So. 14 years, um, that population has gone. And I should say that it, it had been growing basically from the 1950s all the way up through the early two thousands, the fur seal population was doing quite well. Uh, but when this interaction switched, uh, and the leopard seals came in, the first seal population has been in a very steep decline ever since. Yeah.
0: Can I, I guess I might be jumping ahead, but why did their population increase?
1: So Antarctic fur seals were recovering from human extraction. Um, The human interaction, and we were talking about the Antarctic being pristine, which in some ways it is, Mm -hmm. but the human interaction with the Antarctic has actually been one of serial extraction, if you will. The very, very first folks who went down to the Antarctic went down there to hunt seals. And specifically, they went down there to hunt Antarctic fur seals. They have uh, fur seals have luxurious coats. They are, actually have the second densest fur of any uh, mammal on the planet. Oh, wow! After the sea otter, yep, yep. the Pacific sea otter. Um, and uh, so, you know, humans were interested in that. Uh, the fur trade was was big at the time, um, which we're talking about uh, the early 1800s. Um, right around 1819, 1820. And uh, they extirpated Antarctic fur seals from the Antarctic Peninsula really, really quickly. Within a few years, they had killed basically every Antarctic fur seal. Um, and they killed most of the animals at South Georgia, but uh, uh, essentially a um, just a small population of Antarctic fur seals survived up there. Okay. Um, and that was enough, you know, when hunting, when that economy fell apart, and then later when hunting protections were put into place to protect seals, that population rebounded uh, and did quite well. Um, and then they recolonized animals from South Georgia, probably recolonized the Antarctic Peninsula area in about the 1950s. So that's why the fur seals populations were recovering.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. But then, but then, so why from, why was there an increase, I guess, in leopard seals? Did you find from o three to 2008?
1: Uh, well, we have, <laughs> I have a working theory that's based on a lot of evidence, but full admittance, a lot of it is circumstantial. Sure, of course. And it, and it, A lot of that results in the fact that we just haven't, um, you know, there just weren't that many people that have been studying leopard seals directly uh, over the years. But there were some studies in the area where our research has been done um, in the 1970s and 80s, um, and it demonstrated that that these large leopard seals at the time – were eating a big proportion of what they're eating during the summertime, Antarctic summer, Austral summer, uh, it was crab-eater seal pups. So the pups from one of the other species of ice seals. Mm -hmm. And crab-eater seals are really numerous, um, millions and millions of animals all around the Antarctic, but they're really ice-dependent and... uh, So likely what has happened, and there's a lot of lines of evidence to demonstrate that they were an important resource and in other areas are an important resource for leopard seals, these crab eater seal pups. But as I mentioned, the area has changed a lot and we've lost so much sea ice that these populations of crab eater seals have moved. Um, We don't know. We don't have enough data to know if the populations of crab eaters or leopard seals have gone up or down. We don't have enough data, but we do know that they have redistributed and that change likely led to some of these leopard seals realizing they needed to prey switch find another resource to fill in for uh, what they lost with the with the removal of crab eater seal pups and antarctic fur seals are there and antarctic fur seals are uh like all of their sea lion and fur seal uh, brethren or family group if you will are temperate evolved so they don't have a long-term overlap on an evolutionary time scale with predators like the leopard seal that are coming from the ocean. Most of their predators were coming from land. And so they lack anti-predator behaviors to protect themselves from predators like leopard seals. And as such, what you see is this normal progression of uh, these uh, fur seal pups, they're born, they start to develop, and then within a few weeks, they go a- down into the intertidal and start playing around and developing their mobility skills and uh, growing and doing, so, you know, their social interactions and all these things that they've developed over evolutionary time, and which probably provided some protection from terrestrial predators. But now the predator is in the intertidal. Uh, and and they really have no defense. And so leopard seals come in and they, they have a couple of different techniques, but primarily an ambush technique that they use. And they're, they're quite successful, 80, 90% successful. Really? Yeah.
0: Wow. So 80 to 90%? Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. And so that's based
1: on observations that were done on land, but also um, uh, observations from the video footage that we got. And of course there are individual differences in this. There are some individuals who just can't develop the technique. You have to understand that uh, these are solitary predators. um, When they're uh, weaned, when their mother essentially abandons them, Um, when they're young, there there is no overlap that we know of where instruction takes place. Um, there are certainly mammals. You can look to whales and dolphins. You can look to big cats where there's an overlap between parents and offspring where there's some teaching going on about, okay, you know, here, here are some places to look for food. Here's some techniques for getting food, but within uh, the leopard seals, that interaction doesn't happen. So they have some instincts and then they have some learned behaviors And you can watch that play out in real time in terms of their individual foraging techniques.
0: Wow. That is just – yeah. So, I mean, is it – do you think they prefer seals over penguins?
1: Well, I I think it's very reasonable and it fits in with optimal foraging theory writ large that um, the Antarctic first – that they're going to go after the food resource that provides the highest amount of energy per effort and per space, if you will. Um, an Antarctic fur seal, an seal pup is going to provide a lot more energy than uh, even an adult penguin, for example.
0: Is it hard sometimes, I know you're a researcher, you are a professional, but is it hard sometimes to watch some of these you know, predator and prey interactions, these kills?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think you have to be almost a little bit dead inside to not feel... Uh, something uh, okay. when you see these interactions. Um, and and certainly, um, there's an emotional component to it. I, I think my take on it, and this, this is actually something that was summarized um, uh, by uh, a, a more senior researcher who I talked to uh, earlier in my career, but I think it summarizes it well for me. When I see a predator-prey interaction anywhere in nature, it doesn't really bother me if what you're watching is uh, a well-matched, uh, evolutionary, evolutionarily supported interaction. So for example, a leopard seal grabs an Antarctic fur seal pup, it is completely capable and very frequently kills that animal very quickly because it's capable of doing it. Um, it's zoned in and uh, it's an efficient process if you will. Now, there's a caveat there, because sometimes leopard seals do play with their food. But um, what the ones that are harder for me to watch are when the interaction uh, is less smooth and less um, lined up. For example, uh, you've got a predatory uh, bird in the Antarctic called a skua. And a skua might come down and decide that it is going to kill and scavenge uh, a weak sick penguin but that weak sick penguin can still fight back a little bit and so you've got this interaction that plays out over maybe 12 hours
0: oh. you know
1: that's that's pretty rough to, to do you, watch do
0: on. you ever step in i mean i, I uh, mean we, have you we, ever how could you not i mean are you kidding <laughs> me if i saw that Skoa or is that what you call it a stoa
1: Skua, yeah
0: skua. to get the hell out of here <laughs> leave jimmy alone i mean i know it's nature but
1: uh, yeah. yeah well I mean there are a couple aspects here we, there, we are restricted um, in terms of permitting in, t- in terms of how we can interact with animals and for what purposes and things there are certainly circumstances where it is appropriate to euthanize an animal um, and uh, and and that has happened and uh, in, in certain circumstances for example if we know that uh, the parent uh, the mother uh, first seal of a first of a very young fur seal pup it has no ch- it died uh-huh. for whatever reason. We know that pup has zero percent chance of survival okay. and so we might step in and, and euthanize it at a certain point okay so uh, yeah yes and yes and no and and certainly you know uh, I think anybody can be uh, have their heart pulled in in those moments.
0: Yeah, and I'm sorry to get so into this, but there's not very much footage regarding when the leopard seals come in like for attack to a fur seal. I mean, they're obviously yeah. using those massive jaws. Are they just, I mean, how are they killing? Are they just biting? I mean, how are they killing? Is that a stupid question? Yeah. I mean, no, they, it's not a stupid question at all. Uh, okay, and
1: in thanks. fact, you know, they're, they're like, again, we learned a lot more about all these things when, when we managed to get some cameras out on them. But some of it you can see from short. But essentially, yeah, so um, the leopard seals another really interesting aspect of this amazing creature, by the way, is that they have what's referred to as dual-purpose dentition. So if you look inside their mouths, they have these large developed canines that you would expect on any apex carnivore, right? For grabbing and and ripping flesh. But they've got this whole alignment of post-canine teeth, which have, we call them tricuspid, because they have three cusps, And um, they're aligned in such a way that allow leopard seals to actually filter particles out of the seawater, just like a whale would do with baleen. Okay. Which lets leopard seals undertake these high-end predatory interactions using all that mobility and strength, but also to filter feed krill out of the water like a whale.
0: What? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's amazing.
0: Oh, wow. Mind blown. They even eat krill?
1: Yes. Yeah. In fact, one of the things we've most recently learned is that almost all of them probably eat a lot of krill.
0: Okay. Oh, my God. I had no idea. Okay. So so they have special dentition that's able, you know, so they're able to eat krill and seals.
1: Right. So, but they can use those canines when they're doing an ambush. Let's say there's an Antarctic fur seal pup or even a penguin that's down in the inner tidal. Okay. They come in and they'll grab it. They've got really powerful jaws. Once they get a hold of it, The first pup has very little chance of getting away. Um, And then you do see an awkward transition because now they're up in very shallow water. Leopard seals, like all true seals, are not particularly mobile on land or in shallow water. They're much more adapted to the marine environment. So you see this very awkward sort of wiggly worm situation as they get themselves back out into deeper water. But at that point, they're either going to uh, break the pup's neck, which they can do. You know, just with a jaw crunch or with a quick whip. Or uh, some of the seals will take it, actually hold it underwater and drown it. Then when the pup is dead, then they'll take it up to the surface. And this is common across all these animals. They'll take it up to the surface of the water. um, They'll grab some skin and they'll shake it. They'll just whip it back and forth. Um, and that's to essentially rip off the skin layer and uh, expose the viscera and the the parts of the animal it really wants to eat. We call that the the red rainbow. Oh, because oh yeah, as you can imagine it's just the water is being splurged and it's dyed red, of course, with the with the blood of the the prey.
0: How I mean, do they eat it pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, it can vary a bit again from individual to individual. Um, But the average process of what we call processing time. So from the time that that um, uh, fur seal pup is secured in the mouth of the leopard seal until uh, the time that it's done and then abandons whatever is left of the carcass is on the order of 10 to 12 minutes.
0: Wow, that's okay. Wow, that's actually pretty close to my hyenas. <laughs> like, yeah, do they do they eat? I'm sorry, I'm like getting so intense. I hope no one's crying on the way <laughs> listening this to work. So after they kill the cute baby, see, no, I, I'm no, I'm yeah. just I, it will actually show a photo of like the big eyes. No, but I'm serious. Yeah. I'm fascinated. What do they leave behind? Are, are they do they eat most of the carcass?
1: Uh, they'll they'll eat most of the viscera and muscle tissue.
0: Okay.
1: They're leaving behind the entire spinal cord, most of the skin, um, and basically the entire skull. Okay. And what you'll find, and and th- these will frequently float up on shore, and then what's left is is consumed by scavenging seabirds and uh, invertebrates in in the in the ocean, um, but. Uh, yeah. So, but they'll wa- wash up on shore, and it's basically just looks like an, an inside out fur seal pup, essentially.
0: Wow. Okay. Sorry I had to get. I got so into that, but uh, it's just you don't no, know. No. It know? is. It is
1: fascinating, and um, I do think. And I'm I'm just gonna jump in with with really quick by saying that um, part. I think of of some of the misconception, if you will, around leopard seals part of their image, what I refer to as their image problem, is that because they are an apex predator, and because they are so capable of uh, undertaking these types of predation events, that's basically how they're singularly portrayed. And so if you look at documentary film footage, if you look at how they appear in popular films like Happy Feet, or the Penguins of Madagascar, or I don't know, can I say like, the names of proper of, films, of and stuff course,
0: and Disney or who, who DreamWorks are not listening to this show, and we're yeah, okay. almost an hour in. Don't yeah. even worry. Heck yeah, I just can't <laughs> play a clip. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the, or, yeah, uh, well, it,
1: it, it, but they um, all of the le, all of those films have leopard seals in them, and they're all slinking, uh, you know, uh, uh, predatory animals that are just you know waiting to kill. Uh, and there's even a line from the the penguins of Madagascar where one of the characters refers to them as nature's snakes. <laughs> oh my God. Wait. And the other penguins like, wait, aren't snakes nature snakes? But <laughs> they, they move so, on pretty quickly. But, but the truth is that, uh, you know, much like if you want to uh, talk about, you know, this has happened with wolves. This has happened with white sharks, other apex predators that, that are just portrayed in that one way and I think it really undersells how interesting they can be, um, how fascinating they are in terms of their biology and their ecology, how clever they are to be able to adapt. I mean I have watched leopard seals are problem solving smart. I have watched leopard seals solve problems during predation events to overcome obstacles. Um, You know there's a high level of intelligence there Uh, and, and that can get lost in the story.
0: Yeah. And you know what? You just brought something to my attention and I'm so happy you did. And I was oblivious to it, but all my questions, like my, my fascination was from what I've seen in documentary films. I was like, tell me how they kill them. Like, you know what I mean? Like I didn't No, really though. That is really interesting because that's how they they're portrayed. And that's what I was, and that—that's all I know. That's why I'm like, give me more info. But yeah, I problem solving. Like, let's talk about that and other things you've learned about these fascinating animals. Let's let's leave on a happy note.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of uh, I'll, I'll I'll try to yeah leave you with with sort of two two take homes that are sort of more recent, and I think hopefully illustrate the that point a little bit. One is we were able to. Uh, over the course of this study, all the way up until now, we've been collecting tissues, uh, which is, come from blood, uh, they can come from whiskers, from the leopard seals that we've worked with. And um, we can un- undertake, we, we use what we call a stable isotope uh, analysis technique, uh, but that's allowed us to be able to tell not only what leopard seals are eating, but the proportion of their diet that comes from those things. and. Like I mentioned before, there's 150 years of reports of leopard seals eating everything because that's what's charismatic, right? And that's what you see. Uh, everything from penguins to seals to squid to a duck-billed platypus. What? Um, yeah. Sometimes these things get up in Australia and uh, apparently duck-billed platypus.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> I oh wow okay, but that's no understandably idea. a pretty pretty rare. <laughs> yeah, but it's still something that I don't think anyone has ever. I yeah, that's interesting. Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah, and uh, so anyway, the, you can get into that, but those are anecdotal one-off things. What we've been able to show is that males and female adults leopard seals are basically doing pretty much the same things during the winter time, and they're really dependent upon Antarctic krill as a food source. Um, a third to half of what they're eating during the winter and spring. They're also eating fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally, uh, penguin. Now, the, those, those penguin and seal resources during the spring and winter are, are much harder for them to find uh, because it's the summer breeding behavior that congregates those animals. During the winter, they're, they're eating mostly krill and fish. But when they transition into summer, they transition differently. The males change their diet just a little bit and start eating some more penguin, but still pretty much krill and fish, where the females, these big dominant animals that are able to exclude the males, are concentrating more on these high-end, high-energy food sources like Antarctic fur seal pups. And so you see that big change during the summertime. but the, the, I guess the, the flip side to that was using the techniques that we had before, observ- uh, just looking from shore and looking through scat that's deposited on shore, uh, we didn't understand that these big adult females were eating krill all the time, even during summer, You know, a, around a third of, of their entire diet is coming from Antarctic krill, um, which makes them... Uh, a krill-dependent predator, but it ties them in right with the base of that food chain. Even though they're this apex predator, they're really dependent upon what's going on uh, at the base of that food chain.
0: Wow. Okay. And so why do they shift just to get resources uh, for a pup? Is that what the, is that what they're doing?
1: Yeah, I, that's, that's, that's pretty much exactly it. And so you think about these big adult females Um, most of them in any given year, uh, are going to have a pup, right? And so that's going to happen in the October to November timeframe. They're going to pup. Um, they're going to actually, they just fast during that time. They're rearing the pup. And so they're just metabolizing their fat and their tissue and they're provisioning the pup after about four weeks, they leave and take off. So now we're into, you know, mid to late December And at the beginning of February, a couple of months from now, they're going to molt. They're going to uh, renew most of their fur, their pelage. Both of those things, provisioning a pup and molting, are hugely energetically demanding. And so they, more so than the males that don't have to deal with uh, both of those things, uh, have to get a lot of energy, a lot of food resources, in a relatively short amount of time, and that is part of what drives, um, you know, their their uh, their search for these high energy resources.
0: Have you reported any cannibalistic behavior of a adult leopard seal eating a leopard seal pup? No, we haven't.
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. We we've never seen that. Doesn't mean it it wouldn't happen, but I would be a little surprised. Um, Leopard seals are, you know, as we said right from the beginning, they're understudied. There just aren't very many people out there. In fact, no one has ever seen a leopard seal male and female breeding in the wild ever. All observations that have ever been done were of animals that were in captivity. Um, We know it happens. (laughs) Proof is in the pudding. Um, But... But that's just to say that it's really rare, and it's in fact rare to even see a mother and pup pair out on the ice floe. There are something like, you know, 15 observations ever. Ever. Uh, it's a really rare occurrence. Yeah. Um, you know, the Antarctic's just so remote, and these are relatively cryptic animals. They, you know, they're, they're out there, and they're difficult to find. So when you ask a question about their breeding behavior, there isn't a ton of data to inform that. But... Of the other um, you know seal species that we know a lot more about that that stuff tends not to happen. Now, uh, it is not uncommon for some other s- seal species, and I would totally believe that this happens with um, and and well and we know it happens with leopard seals as well to go after the young of other species okay
0: um,
1: that are that are similarly related, other other seal species, etc.
0: Are, and I know – and I know – and I'm not trying to put you like on the spot because I know there's so much to learn. Have yep. you seen – I mean do the young – do you know – is there a high mortality rate or are they getting given a pretty fair shot? Or Because I'm assuming they're only a predator or probably what, like killer whales? Would that be the only predator?
1: Yeah, that, that's a fair assessment. And and there have been observations of killer whales uh, eating and, and killing juvenile uh, leopard seals. So we know it happens. Okay. Um, but we, there's just, we have absolutely, we do not have the data to answer a question like that. We really don't know. The, the population does appear to be healthy. They are circumpolar. Um, but, uh, yeah, we do, we don't have the data to answer a question like that.
0: Okay. What is, what would you like answered? I know that's probably the hardest (laughs) question.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, well, it goes on and on, um, What I would like to do in the the near future is to undertake getting a better assessment of how many there are. Not just leopard seals, all the Antarctic ice seal species, Um, we just don't have very much data. Historically, it's been really expensive and difficult to get. The Antarctic's remote, it's very big, these animals are all over the place, so you need ships, you need aircraft, etc. But I do think, particularly in the Antarctic Peninsula, that um, advancements that we've made, particularly with the use of drones or unmanned aerial systems, um, I I think we can start to solve uh, some of those problems, get more data about exactly how many animals there are, how they're distributed in terms of uh, their life stages, et cetera. um, Because that's going to really help inform what kind of impact uh, each of these species, but particularly leopard seals, are having on the ecosystem as a whole. We can get much more accurate numbers um, and sort of put that together with what we've learned about their diet and um, and come up with some some actual uh, estimates. So that's one thing I would definitely like to learn. And the other sort of big question that we're we're getting at uh, in terms of leopard seals specifically um, is understanding more about their breeding behavior locations success rates like you're saying Um, what aspects of the environment are important for them to cue on Um, you know is this is their breeding success cyclical like it is for some other species where there are certain environmental conditions that really help them succeed Um, and those are pieces of information that are both are really important for helping us look to the future in terms of conservation Um, what decisions can we try to make to preserve the interactions that are going on in this ecosystem um and yeah i'll i'll leave it at that um i know this uh, uh the podcast is focused on leopard seals yeah uh, i i really have some uh, some some questions that i really want answered in the short term Relate to how all of these species—not just the leopard seals, but also Antarctic fur seals, some of these penguin species, Weddell seals—how they're all uh, interacting um, and responding to changes with their environment, but specifically the availability of their prey. And for all of those species, one of the common denominators is the Antarctic crow.
0: Wow, that is amazing. Okay, this is like—I know we're past an hour. I'm just—I could talk to you forever. I. What, I mean, I'm, go ahead. I'm, I'm having a good time too. Uh, are you? Okay, good. Because I, <laughs> I was like, oh, this guy's probably like, shut up, Um, <laughs> What is it like getting in the water with a leopard seal?
1: I can't tell you.
0: Okay, because I didn't know if that's, okay. I didn't know if that was like something, because I didn't know that's something that you've ever done before or um, you, you're mainly on a boat.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I'd certainly have, Uh, I mean – We've done now, I've been directly involved with something like 65 captures of uh, adult leopard seals, which have been sedation captures. Uh, basically, we'll tranquilize them. There have been hundreds and hundreds of interactions that I've had with animals that were unsedated when we're putting out ID tags or uh, sampling whiskers. You don't need to sedate the animals. And we try to just, dis- we go out of our way to disturb the animals as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, anyone studying animal behavior is naturally motivated to disturb those animals as little as possible um, so that you don't affect the behavior that that you're trying to understand. But, um, and, and I've been in small boats. I have seen fascinating stuff. I have been in a zodiac and watched this uh, adult female just get entranced by uh, the cavitation bubbles coming off from the outboard engine. And for something like 45 minutes, it just followed inches behind the outboard. Everywhere the boat would drive, it would just follow like it was mesmerized. And I've seen that type of behavior in sharks before because they have really sensitive uh, electrical fields that are disrupted by outboard uh, motors. Never seen uh, – no reason to believe that's true of leopard seals, so I don't know what the connection there was. But – fascinating stuff um certainly been around them a lot um in small boats uh in intertidal situations and yeah. things yeah
0: like I, I mean can you be honest i mean i'm gonna be on i mean i i, I want to see one in the wild i know i will and especially i feel like i have a great connection now we had this podcast i feel like it went well uh i was gonna yep. say <laughs> do you ever get nervous because these are i mean formidable predators do you ever get nervous i mean or are you kind of like oh they're fine
1: <laughs> no, I definitely get nervous. I get nervous every time, and um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And uh, I'm very happy about that. Um, complacency, I think, probably in any of number of different professions, if you're doing any kind of risk mitigation, complacency is a is a big problem. Um, and I think any interaction with a wild animal needs to be taken seriously and needs to be taken with some precaution um, in an informed way not in a hysterical way um and uh but you know the other side to that is i'm invariably leading teams of other people and so part of my responsibility is making sure that everybody on that team is totally prepared for the interaction um that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing and that everyone is as safe as humanly possible and so i definitely carry that with me probably more than anything else into every interaction uh, that we have that being said I've worked with a lot of these animals. You know, I know that you're fascinated with animals and you've done a ton of work in your life and you know for sure that, um, that you can learn so much uh, from the behavior that these animals have and you can adjust your behavior accordingly. You know when there's an animal that's agitated and it would be disadvantageous to try to work with it at that time. Um, you know other cues to look for um, the way you know uh, that they're safer. And the same is true with leopard seals. And so I feel very comfortable, um, sort of reading those, uh, um, Mm -hmm. those signs, uh, in the field. Um, and I feel very comfortable on, you know, and, uh, undertaking a a safe interaction, if you will. But yeah, they're big predators and things do happen. Um, there have been a couple of interactions where, um, where essentially what we do most of the time, our, our sedation protocol is to use a dart. So we'll dart the animal uh, with, a, with a, a very heavy uh, sedative uh, and then let that sedative take place before we approach to do uh, the, any of the rest of the procedures. And there, what has happened a couple of times is that that dart malfunctioned, but we didn't know it. And so the animal didn't get any sedative when I did my initial approach. Oh. Um, And those animals, uh, you know, I imagine like a crocodile or something like that. They're not very mobile on land, but they're very quick over short spans. Um, And so, you know, you work that into uh, to your approach as well. But a couple heart stoppers there along the way.
0: Oh, my God, dude. I I, can I come down and intern? I guess I want to say for a couple of days. (laughs) 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 Uh, We just we just had some uh, some jobs posted on USA
1: Jobs. Are you serious? Uh, Yeah, but it's. Probably not the not the kind of thing you're looking for, but can I uh, use you
0: as a reference? I don't like <laughs> like I'm imagining I'm imagining the today show sending me and Al Broker, which he probably won't want to go. <laughs> like reporting that where in the world's Al well he is like right next to a leopard seal. Oh
1: yeah, we'll take we'll take you and Al anytime. Yeah, we'll make that happen.
0: Dude, I'm gonna pitch it. Okay. I'm serious. Dude, I'm putting my mind to this. I just you know, I've done a lot of interviews, we're almost in one hundred episodes, and I have I don't think awesome. I don't think I've ever been well, – I don't want to say more. I'm so fascinated with this interview and leopard seals and you are such a fascinating guy to talk to and uh, yeah, I just really appreciate your time and I think it's inspirational and I just – yeah, I could talk your ear off forever. But thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy. Oh, of course.
1: Uh, and Thank you. I, You know, a, a big part of what we do as scientists – a big part of what we should do as scientists is take the time to make sure that we're communicating what we're learning. Uh, because otherwise, why are we doing it, you know?
0: Absolutely. And,
1: you know, folks like you, you make it very, very easy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Your show is awesome. Uh, I just was able to look through some of your other podcasts, and, um, you know, you're doing awesome stuff. So best of luck to you. And, yeah, when, when you've got your pitch with Al Roker, just let me know and we'll see what we can do. Well,
0: what if I can't get Al? What if it's just me? (laughs) You're like, hold on, where's Al? He's in his penthouse in New York. They sent me. I'm serious. (laughs) No, I mean, the
1: the honest answer to your question is that, as you can imagine, it's just really difficult to get to the places that we're going and there aren't, generally aren't, you know, extra bunks and extra spots and and things like that. Um, So when we do uh, get folks there's a, a chance that uh, documentary uh, group uh, out of New Zealand may actually come to to the Cape this year uh, hopefully that'll work out but you know they're arranging their own transportation they're coming down there on a chartered boat and um, that makes it a little bit easier for us to facilitate because we're just we have very limited resources and they're getting more limited all the time and we're and we're trying to make sure that we can get our science done and that unfortunately makes it some of this stuff more difficult, but,
0: Absolutely. but that's, you know, never say never, never say never. I'm going to be in touch. I appreciate it. Okay. I want you to leave the audience. What is one fascinating thing or fun fact about a leopard seal that maybe many people don't know? And we'll just leave it at that. Oh,
1: well, dear Lord. Uh, leopard seals are definitely without a doubt, the most fascinating animal on the entire planet. Um, and that—that's just factual. That's not even—that's not even subjective. Um, several reasons to justify a claim like that. Probably the, the biggest of which is simply that um, they are the only apex apex member of the seal and sea lion group. Um, they are the only seal that's predominantly making. Uh, a living at the high end of the food chain but simultaneously able to forage and need to forage at the base of the the food chain that's really rare for a for any mammal never mind a marine mammal the dual purpose dentition we already covered that's that's a big one i uh, yeah uh i'm not i'm not failing you here
0: no 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 you're not at all no not at all no, I'm like sorry. A door you were so excited to like get off. Okay, bye. I'm like, oh, by the way, can you ask? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, can no, you give no, me no. a long-winded question?
1: Uh, yeah. I'm, to, I'm trying to, I, you know, I talk about these things all the time, and I'm I'm trying to think if it's something that we haven't already talked about during the course of the the interview. Their scientific name isn't particularly sexy. Uh, Hydruger uh, leptonics means small clawed water worker.
0: Oh, that's not good.
1: No, <laughs> it's not <laughs> sexy at all.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you know, apt, but uh, yeah, I think we just we can just leave it at that. They, you know, they're fascinating. You know, they've got that sexual dimorphism—the the females being bigger than the males and being really dominant in their uh, foraging interactions, uh, actively excluding smaller animals uh, of both sexes and defending territories, and watching that play out in real time in a marine environment um, is, is really fascinating stuff.
0: That's awesome. Doug, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.